Is the law neutral and does it serve us all equally? In our three episode series, we looked at three past legal cases, re-examined from a feminist perspective. These rewritings serve to highlight discrete injustices that have occurred in court. But these cases are not isolated occurrences. They are emblematic of a wider pattern of systemic gender biases that frequently impede women's access to justice. In this bonus episode, we will discuss the themes of inequality and discrimination that the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project so powerfully draws attention to. We will also hear the creators of the podcast and editors of the book reflect on their experiences of this project. This is the Feminist Judgments Podcast. I'm Gabrielle Blackburn. Welcome back to the Scottish Feminist Judgments Podcast. I'm Gabrielle Blackburn. I've been the narrator for the last three episodes, and I'm joined today by Amrita Alwalio McMidis, who's been the co-author throughout this series. Welcome, Amrita. Hi, hello. It's nice to it's nice to speak on the podcast. Yeah. How, how does it feel to be on this end of the interviewing process? Uh, good, I think. I haven't done anything yet, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm sure it'll go great. Today we're here to talk about how the podcast came to be and why we wanted to do it really and why we thought that this would be an interesting story to tell and one that we wanted to share. Let's do it. So we can start the story at the beginning. This whole thing started because I came across an event that the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project were doing a year before the launch of the book. And I'm not a legal practitioner, as I've mentioned in the podcast. I knew very little about Scots law at the time. But when I saw the event publicized, the reason I was interested is because I'm interested in the Scottish feminist sector and the work that they do in general. But I realized that when I saw the event being advertised, I didn't actually... I couldn't picture what types of arguments they would be making when it came to feminism talking about the law. I appreciated that there would, of course, be gender dynamics to it, but I, I, I couldn't really imagine what, what these arguments would be. I was curious, basically. So I went to this event, and the way they were telling the stories of these cases and the way they were highlighting the unfairness that had occurred that they were trying to rectify through their feminist rewritings was really interesting to me because despite not having a legal background, the types of unfairness that they were highlighting felt really familiar. The type of logic that they were applying to it um, also felt very familiar from my understanding of feminist theory. And also sort of the amount of work that they had to do, you know, when I, when I heard the case, for me, the unfairness was really salient and really obvious, but the amount of work and the amount of arguments that they had to put forward for it to be heard and for it to be understood by other people um, also felt very familiar and quite frustrating. And so, yeah, so I found it, I found it really fascinating, but then of course it would, you know, dip into more legal arguments that I had less of a grasp on, but I still thought that these stories were interesting and universal. I thought that a lot of the argumentation was quite universal. And so I wanted to, to share it wider so that the types of stories that were being told and the arguments being used would be more accessible to more people who might not have a curiosity to, to attend a law event when they have nothing to do with the law. 
So yeah, you know, I started thinking about how how I could share this wider and a podcast felt like a good medium to do that. And so of course at that point I came to you, Amrita, uh, and I mentioned that I had the idea to 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 do this. What did you think when I when I brought this idea to you? What was interesting to you about it? So yeah, so like you, I don't have a legal background either. I'm an academic, but not a legal academic, but I am a feminist. And I think similarly, what, what you're saying resonated with me is that although it's a legal context, it feels really familiar. I don't think we necessarily had a, a very clear understanding of what exactly that, that would be, what the actual nitty gritty would be in each case. But I think that's still true that, yeah, there's something universal about the ways in which structures like the law has treated women and with the law especially it feels like one of those big social structures that has a huge impact on people's lives you know it doles out punishment um, it determines outcomes it decides what's fair and it's like one of those engines that determine how we treat people but you're also told that the law is pretty much objective you're told that it's pretty much as fair or as fair as it can be and it doesn't, it doesn't need to be fairer. It's a good tool for what it needs to do. But you also know that it's been designed by a particular kind of person historically. And then I guess connecting the two things, you wonder how it could be objective, how it could be fair. Who's done the kind of work that's going to make sure that that is true? And I think that's what's, what's cool connecting it to what I know about the project now is that this is the kind of work that, that does that. Yeah, and I think for me, it, it harks back to something that you come across frequently when people talk about feminism, gender equality, and wanting to create a fairer society. Often people's reaction is, you know, but like, in practice, how are you going to do that? That's a nice idea. But, you know, the system that we have is as good as it can be. We're quite good at being fair. It's not perfect now, but it's as good as we'll get. And this project does a good job of going, but is it? Because it shows in very practical, concrete terms, how a different path could be taken, even without calling for massive systems change, which is always, you know, the sort of pie in the sky. You, you can't just uproot the system entirely. And the, the, the project goes, no, although some parts of that system could benefit from being changed and uprooted. But even if we take the structure as it is without changing a single thing, the way that we practice, the way that we approach things can be different and can bring about outcomes that are fairer. And I think that's the really appealing thing about this project. It gives an answer to that, yes, but in practice, what will you do? Well, here's, here's a bunch of examples for you to choose from. And the other thing I remember that we talked about that we thought was quite interesting was how it's not just a gendered lens, it's a feminist lens. And so what that means is that you can apply it to a huge amounts of different types of law. So the podcast focuses on the more obvious types of cases, your sexual harassment and domestic abuse and, and divorce and things like that, so that, you know, you can, you can immediately sort of picture how that would work. But the project also looks at corporate law, at immigration law, at, you know, property law, which, which I really found helpful because it's sort of showing how much a feminist analysis can do and that it's not just contingent on like the, the person who's, who's, been done an injustice what their gender is there are men in in the project who can 
get fairer outcomes and juster outcomes through that feminist analysis. There are trans people, there are immigrants, and it doesn't matter what their gender is, you can still apply a feminist analysis and reach different conclusions. And I thought that was, that was really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I think we had a couple of misconceptions in terms of you just speaking there about what actually these cases would be coming to it without a knowledge of what what's in the book and what the project looked at. And I think for me, one of those is that you assume that they're going to be old cases, they're going to be historic cases, and that's just not really the case, which I think says something in itself. I mean, the most recent case was from 2014, but most of the cases in the book date from the last 20 years. And I think that feeling goes along with a sense that I think many people have that maybe the law especially and judges have been biased or have had a certain perspective in the past, but it's no longer really something that we need to be conscious of. It's no longer something that we need to question because it's all pretty much kind of sorted now. And I think that's something that's really interesting and that's something, yeah, that was kind of a little bit counter to what, what I expected going in. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back on that point in just one second, because I think it leads us nicely onto how we then decided to do it. So, you know, we, we knew we had three episodes to make our case. And so we, we read the book and we got together and we sort of had to decide which cases we were going to talk about. And it was really hard. Well, I thought it was really hard because all the cases were really interesting and they all had different types of feminist approaches, different types of feminist arguments, lots of nuance. And it, we wanted to include all of them. Um, we, we wanted to include a variety of different types of law as well and a different types of people who could benefit from, from the analysis. But ultimately, we had to whittle it down to three cases. And that's kind of how we landed on Drury, Ruxton and Coyle as we were just trying to figure out which ones resonated with us the most or complemented each other's the most. And so, yeah, so we ended up with these three cases and then we had to decide which order to put them in. And we decided to do Drury first. And I think that ties into what you've just said about history. The case that Drury makes is that the past impacts are present. And that feels like quite a, quite a tangible, obvious argument to make is that the things that we've done in the past are still currently in play, particularly because we have things like precedent, the doctorate of precedent, which while it's really important to have the doctrine of precedent, it also kind of sticks you in this, we've always done this this way, therefore we'll continue to do it in this way, which brings obvious concerns in terms of our ever-changing social norms and who we think are people that deserve to be protected by the law. That's obviously gotten wider and wider over the centuries. And Drury kind of makes the case that it's important to constantly critically reassess where we're at now. Is the law reflective of what we want the law to be right now? And are we still happy with the relics that we take from our history? So that's probably why we landed on Drury being the first case that we talked about. Yeah. And with Drury, I think the key is that it highlights the difference between process versus outcome. Because for both the original judgment and the feminist rewriting of that judgment, they come to the same conclusion. So Drury is found guilty of murder in both, but the process of how that decision was made is very different. And you might think that that's not important. It doesn't matter how we get there. Guilty is guilty, but it has an impact on future judgments and how they are made and really highlights who has access to certain kinds of arguments and why and how that access has been shaped by the historical context. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, 
particularly when you contrast that to Ruxton that we put next, where, you know, in Drury, there's so much space made for a homicidal fury. So anger, this typically masculine owned emotion this whole appeal only occurs because we've kind of decided that anger needs this special concession in law but here in Ruxton we have a woman who is terrified who is fleeing for her life who has very good reason to be scared and she's not given that space her fear is not given any space in her judgment and it really contrasts sharply and I think that's probably one of the reasons why we put Ruxton second but also I think the reason we wanted to put Ruxton second is the argument is slightly less obvious. So we move away from, yes, of course, you know, back in the day, things weren't very fair. Uh, maybe women were treated less less well, but, but, but now, you know, we treat them well. And Ruxton goes, well, no, actually, this is a modern case with modern circumstances. And yet she is still invisible. Her humanity is still invisible in, the, in a way that's, that's really salient. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what one reason why I was so excited to include Ruxton as well was that it just it just seems so unfair from just a human standpoint. There are so many aspects in the original case that just seem to disregard her lived experience. So the lived experience of Fiona Lang as she got in her car on that night. It just seems like and again, connecting it to what you say with Drury, that the law is capable of making concessions to some kinds of human experience, but not others and not here. So why is that? I think it's important and it just highlights the question, why do we treat some kind of humanities and some aspects of humanity differently from others? Yeah, and I think it being about domestic abuse was also really important because, you know, this is one manifestation of how domestic abuse survivors are systematically treated unfairly in the legal system. And we've known a lot about domestic abuse for a very long time. We know quite a lot and we have a lot of evidence now about how it how it works, what it does, and the ramifications of that. And also, really importantly, we know that it's overwhelmingly perpetrated by men and the victims are overwhelmingly women. And so when you know that kind of answers the question, why is it that we treat different people's humanity differently? In this case, in the case of domestic abuse, it is directly tied to gender. And so it felt like a, the right place to really reinforce this, that no, we're still not past this place of bias and prejudice impacting our structures, sadly. And then we get to Coil and Coil, which is the third case that we speak about in the podcast. And just as you're saying there about the building up of the argument, you know, starting with Drury, it feels like the most obvious kind of argument to make. And then with Ruxton, you've got a slightly more nuanced argument, a slightly more work to kind of highlight what exactly is going on in that case and what exactly has been left out. And with Coyle and Coyle, on the other hand, you've actually got what feels like a very familiar story. Um, it's another story that actually maybe you might expect. So it's a wealthy couple getting divorced with a agreement about who gets how much, essentially, where Mrs. Coyle is asking for more. And it feels like a bit of a trope. But you never actually hear the, uh, the side of that story where Mrs. Coyle deserves more because of the work she's put in and the contributions and sacrifices she has made and how they have been undervalued. So I think that that aspect really adds for this case and is kind of why we wanted to 
why we wanted to do it. Yeah, and you use the word trope, and I think that's really appropriate as well, because you've got this odd cycle where domestic work and care work aren't valued. And so then the law operates based on our cultural understanding that domestic work and care work don't count. And so then we get to divorce settlements where it's almost a moment for men to protect the assets that are rightfully theirs from women who are trying to unlawfully take it from them. And then that's become a trope within our media. You know, lot, you can pull out lots of films and books and songs where, where that's the case, where there's kind of this gold digger storyline. And then that comes across in, in Coil again, that it reinforces the approach that the law takes and justifies the approach that the law takes. And so there's this vicious cycle going on in terms of the story that we keep repeating. And exactly as you said, Coil felt like an opportunity to, to tell the other side of that story, go, yeah, but when are we valuing Mrs. Coyle's contributions and all the sacrifices that she's made? We never do. And yeah, it felt like a good time to pause on that and really reflect on it. And I think it's just too easy to say it's too difficult to properly value some things that it's just too hard to quantify how much someone has contributed when it's care work. You just can't quantify how much something has affected someone. You can't put a real monetary value against those things but again i think this case highlights that you can if you try and you want to and it's important to question why that doesn't get done in situations like this when we're talking about the invisible work that women do and where exactly we draw the line of what gets to be properly valued and what doesn't yeah yeah and so that's how we landed on our three cases and the, and the way we articulated this whole podcast, almost like um, here are three different examples of how the law discriminates and how the law isn't equally applied to both genders. So we've got the kind of history hangover part where we've got leftovers that we don't necessarily want in our laws anymore. And we can show how we can how we can remove them, sort of weed out the relics that are left over. And then after that, we've got Ruxton, which makes the point that actually, you know, what we include is important and that those are decisions that we make. And we need to pay attention to how we're making these decisions and who's making these decisions and why and what that reflects about what we think is important. And then lastly, in Coil, we kind of have this story of yet again, a, a woman's life and lived experiences and contributions that are just minimized to the point of becoming essentially invisible or, or completely disregarded that has a huge impact on her access to justice. So that created that story arc that we tell within the podcast. Yeah, and ultimately I think all of that is about looking at how we correct the processes and outcomes that aren't or haven't been fair. And it's not about manipulating the law. So it is what you want it to be to satisfy, you know, some agenda. It's about making the law more equitable by including things that have been traditionally neglected or delegitimized. And all of the work in the book and in this project kind of highlights that you can do that in a principal way and that you can do that in a way that does justice, if you will, to kind of the way that the law operates. And it seems like it, it should be what legal judgments should be doing, uh, trying to make fairer decisions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not about making the law what you want it to be. It's about making sure that the law is doing what it's supposed to do, which is providing equal access to justice, regardless of who you are and what your circumstances are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
to slip back into my role of uh, interviewer, I just wanted to ask you one question. Now that we've done these podcasts and we've been with these cases for a while and we've turned them over and over and we've really tried to unpick what stories are being told here, I wanted to ask you if there was one thing that anybody would take away from this podcast, what would you like that one thing to be? Ooh, good, good question. Um, so I think that the one thing that has struck me and runs through all of the cases that we look at in the podcast is just highlighting how important it can be to think about what gets left out and why. So in the cases we look at, whether it's information that's getting omitted or part of the story that doesn't get emphasized or doesn't get valued, just thinking about why certain things do get left out and why they get systematically left out. Um, and with something like law, it's easy to just assume that it's authoritative. It's this really important societal structure and it's therefore leaving things out because they should be left out and they're not relevant and they're not actually important. But ultimately, you know, it's a structure that has been shaped and influences by people and most often by a particular kind of person um, and we should actively be questioning that. My name is Vanessa Monroe. I am Scottish obviously but I'm now based at Warwick University in England. And I'm Sharon Cowan. I teach at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Hi, I'm Chloe Kennedy. I work at Edinburgh Law School with Sharon. Together, you edited and coordinated the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project, and you also authored two feminist rewritings in the book. Today, we're here together to look back and talk a bit about what it was like creating this project. And to start with, I think I'd like to hear from you about what exactly is a Feminist Judgments Project? Because we've discussed aspects of it, obviously, throughout these episodes, but I'd love to pause on it and hear how you would describe it. Vanessa, do you want to start? I guess the first thing to know is that the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project is one in a line of feminist judgments projects that have taken place. Um, they started in Canada and then since then there have been projects in a number of jurisdictions, England and Wales, New Zealand, Australia, Northern slash Ireland and projects ongoing in the states and plans for new projects again in Canada and so on. So um, there's a kind of global feminist judgment conversation and Scotland's project finds its place very kind of proudly in that context. But really the kind of the core essence of all those projects comes from this idea that fundamentally a feminist critique of law is to question the claims that law often makes about itself, that it's objective, that it's neutral, that it's coherent and seamless, and that there's you know, very limited scope for discretion or prejudice or bias or perspective in the way that the law operates, which is something that I think as legal academics, we can sometimes fall into the trap of encouraging our students to accept a little bit less critically than they probably ought to. And obviously what's great about feminist judgments projects is although they have that kind of core rationale at heart, it is a method that can be used differently in different jurisdictions. So Vanessa was talking about some of the places where there have been completed projects. There are also ongoing, as yet uncompleted projects in 
India, Africa. I think there's some talk of a project maybe in Mexico. Those are very different kinds of jurisdictions, although they have colonial histories, all of those places actually. So some of the issues will be the same. They also have their own culturally specific jurisdiction specific issues that will come up in a feminist judgments project that cut across issues of gender. So the issues of race, class, caste, culture, colonialism and so on are elements that feminist judgments projects can, as critical projects, engage with deeply in a way that is really illuminating and helpful for all of us in the projects to think about as a way of exemplifying the way that that impacts on people and for feminist judgments projects, particularly women, is a very intersecting way that, that, that those different vectors of marginality come to the fore when you put feminist judgments projects into the context of different jurisdictions. Yeah. I think just could I just say something very briefly too about the um, different countries that these projects are taking place in. One of the things we've talked about in this podcast is the kind of role of the judge, how much can judges do with what they have in front of them. And I think the answer to that question also very much depends on like which legal system you're, you're thinking about, because some places have much more by way of legal codes. So arguably the judge has a different role to play there than in places like Scotland and elsewhere where there's much more kind of judicial development of the law. So, you know, how much a feminist judge can actually do might depend also on, you know, where they're situated, so to speak. So, it goes back to something that Vanessa was saying about, you know, what do you want to do with a judgment? Do you want to try and change the outcome? Do you want to try and make sure that somebody's story that wasn't told appears in the alternative feminist rewriting of the judgment? So some of it is about what you would like to do to make the judgment more feminist. And some of it is about what you can do, because there were obviously times when the person writing the judgment couldn't change the outcome because they can't change the law. So in our project, as in pretty much all the projects so far, one of the rules that we stuck by was that you can only use sources that would have been available to you at the time of the original judgment. So if there was a law in force that was applicable at the time, then you can't just do a fantasy island and wave your magic wand and wish that that piece of legislation away. You have to follow the law. So there would have been some cases where it wasn't possible for us to change the outcome in a feminist judgment. But even that aside, you can still do a feminist rewriting of a judgment in lots of other ways, as Vanessa was saying, around making classic kind of feminist methodologies like making silenced voices heard, making sure that a gender lens is applied to especially the more obvious areas of things like family law, but also in the not so obvious feminist areas like company law or property law, there are still areas where a gender lens would bring a more equitable outcome or a more equitable process for the people involved in the case. Mm. I think you were going to say something there, Vanessa, weren't you? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that for us in coordinating the project, one of the things that was really important was that we maintain that spirit that feminism is a house with many rooms. So we certainly didn't want to dictate to anybody writing their judgments what a feminist would think and in fact one of the things that we're quite pleased comes across in some of the judgments in the project is different ways that a feminist might look at the same case in terms of uh, I'm thinking in particular about a case of Dugan about conscientious objection and abortion where the judgment writers and the commentator both take what they consider to be feminist approaches 
but have a very different analysis. So, so I think one of the things we were keen to do is to have a diversity of feminist approaches, but also, as Sharon was saying, the idea that you could have some quite subtle feminist intonations in there alongside maybe areas around sexual violence, which would be the obvious kind of feminist terrain that you might want to interject into. So we, we have cases, property cases, Frankie McCarthy's rewrite of a property case, which um, is about how you use communal areas of a tenement building. And the way in which her feminism comes to bear in that analysis is, is by thinking about the relationships that people have with property and the relationships that property creates amongst individuals and how you manage and nurture the relationships through the uses to which property is put. So it's not necessarily the most confronting, obvious type of feminist analysis, but it's an analysis that is informed by, amongst other theoretical criticisms and critiques, a feminist frame. I think Vanessa covered it actually. I was just going to say that with some of the property cases, uh, it's interesting because the critiques could be almost made from a kind of anti-capitalist perspective or a more kind of how do we reach decisions in a collaborative way perspective, which of course has feminist aspects to it in the sense that feminist works have engaged with these questions and come up with very specific answers. But one of the things that came out was, you know, it doesn't have to be an exclusively feminist commitment that you are pursuing in your, in your judgment. It can be one that's shared by other kinds of ideologies or commitments, political commitments. But what we were doing is showing this breadth of feminism, I think, and the different ways it can actually be incredibly fruitful to engage with, even if the subject matter doesn't obviously scream out as being something that more um, mainstream ideas around feminism might be uh, relevant to. As judgment writers, I think we were all out of our comfort zone in, in probably two key respects. One of which was is just that we're academics, we're not judges. And so some judgment writers, I think, quite early on were kind of emboldened by the idea that they could be a judge and you know what they said went and there was no dubiety about that. But for others, myself included, I think, that was a much harder process to kind of find your judicial voice. And so that was a, a shift in the comfort zone. And then I think maybe a little bit allied to that, you know, Sharon mentioned something about the rules of the project when she was talking. And this is a kind of ambivalence that sits at the heart of all feminist judgment projects, really. But is this question of if we're starting from a premise that we don't think that the law is neutral, objective, tidy, seamless, clear rules and lines of authority, but we want to write judgments in a world in which judgments tend to pretend or be read as if that is true, then you also somewhat need to play by those rules in writing your own judgments. So it, again, there's a question of being a little bit out of your comfort zone by accepting certain claims about convention that if I was writing it as a feminist academic, I would be much more critical of, but to give your judgment that kind of air of credibility in a current context, you might go along with for the right in some cases and I think that that again puts people um, out of their comfort zone to varying degrees I guess. I'm probably one of the people who really enjoyed writing the judicial voice. I found it so kind of intoxicating I think is the word I once slightly pretentiously used on Twitter to talk about it. I found that feeling of power just even though it's kind of fake power it's incredibly 
emboldening. And I think it was freeing for me as well to decide like, this is the line I'm going to pursue. I think I've found some good moves I can make to get there. And now I just have to write as if I really, really believe it, which again, I think with academic writing, even though we always have a kind of argument we want to make or a perspective we want to adopt, we tend to often write in a way that's quite not hedged exactly, but we, we want to do justice to the complexity. And, and like, like Vanessa was saying, when judges write, of course, I think they do that to an extent, but they also have to then say as much as they can, here is the kind of right answer. And, and actually doing that, which is something that we don't always do in our academic writing, I really found fun. So I liked it. Yeah, intoxicating. What a great word. <laughs> I... I, I'm not sure if I found it intoxicating, but it was partly because we were writing it together. Venice and I co-wrote our judgment and we were obviously trying to write like a judge. And, and there were some quite gritty questions for us to grapple with too around if we wanted to change things, ideally, the way we wanted them to turn out, we actually would have had to have changed a whole doctrine of law. And it was such a big thing to do that we both kind of I think balked a bit, would you say, Vanessa, mm-hmm. at, at the um, at the sort of enormity of doing that and what might be the knock-on consequences of doing that for other areas of law and so on. So I would say in some ways we were quite careful about how we did that. But I, I, can't, I enjoyed it. It was really good. But I think I lost a little bit of the sense of, of what Chloe is talking about, partly because of those other things of doing it together and being kind of conscious of not being able or not being willing I'm not sure to kind of strike down a whole area of criminal law and rewrite it from scratch and I suppose that's interesting in itself you know maybe if we'd been writing solo we might not have talked ourselves in the moment out of some of the things that we talked ourselves out of along the way it's hard to know isn't it but I think I think it's right that one of the things that I probably hadn't anticipated as agonising over quite so much was that dilemma between getting the outcome that we wanted for this particular accused in this particular case in Ruxton and Lang, which is the case that we rewrote, and what that would mean for other cases where you might um, have a sort of always that notion of the slippery slope of where that's going to take you to and where will that, that end. we agreed right okay we're only going to do it if we could do it a bit differently and we bandied about all sorts of ideas around maybe we will write letters and poems instead of judgments and it goes back to what Vanessa was saying about being taken seriously as a project is that we knew if we wanted to actually speak to lawyers and legal professionals judges so on as well as students and other people that and we were persuaded of this by other feminist judgment writers that we would need to abide by some of the conventions otherwise people that we might want to talk to and say look this could have been done differently it could have been fairer it could have been more just wouldn't listen to us because they would be thinking well you've just written a poem what's you know you you don't really understand the task of judging you don't understand the constraints that judges work, work under and so on so we bandied about a few ideas for a while and we did come up with the idea of doing something with a bit more creativity at its core but how that actually evolved we could not have foreseen at the beginning it just it took on an absolute life of its own the artistic part of the project is very much its own project in its own right as well as something that is deeply integrated into the academic project we've got 
we've got so many different forms of artwork kind of represented in the project. I think we were all quite curious to see how it was going to pan out. We had a sense that kind of written creative works would be possible. And, and in a way, the kind of written word lends itself to some extent to um, this kind of enterprise. But it was so amazing to see how these non-textual works managed to engage so powerfully with the themes of the work. I think it's really brought an extra component to this project in terms of the kinds of ways we can speak to different audiences, but also, you know, what we can say, the kinds of commentary we can provide on the law and how it serves certain groups, you know, differently than others. And so I think it's been something which was experimental to begin with, but it's become absolutely central and core to, to this particular project. So I think we're really proud of the, uh, the creative strand. It's actually turned out to be a really interesting queer space as well, much queerer than the written side of the project. And that's kind of interesting to me too, especially since in many ways the project wasn't as diverse as we would have liked it to have been. But the creative side of it did, I think, provide a space for a little bit more diversity of approach of of experience and co contribution what people could bring to the project than maybe the academic side did and i sort of felt like the podcast would be the final moment of the project and and that would be a, a really lovely way to bring it to a close and I'm really sorry to say this to everybody but actually i think that if anything it's just kind of stoked more enthusiasm for not doing the same thing again but you know we we had over the course of this project spoken about other sort of um spin-off series that's the words i'm looking for thank you spin-off series more sister projects of, of with aligned kind of objectives um around legislation or feminist argument that might be of interest to us and i think that the podcasts have really made me think that we really ought to do that and that there's kind of so much more to do and it's opened my eyes to the ways in which you can take what can feel like quite kind of academic siloed work and with the right talent and behind you um, open that out to a much wider audience. While we were doing the judgments project people kept saying to us what about an arguments project a famous arguments project because a judge can only decide on issues that are put before them and so if if they don't hear feminist arguments, how can they come to feminist conclusions? Now, I don't entirely 100% agree with that. I think there are lots of things a judge can do that are feminist without specifically feminist judgments being put before them. But I can see the point that's being made. And I think there is, especially with regard to the pedagogical aspects of the project, like teaching students how to make feminist arguments would be a really incredibly fascinating project to do but we did have one or two people who said to us I can't participate in this project but if you were to do a feminist legislation project I'd be super interested in that and that requires a completely different kind of approach a different methodology there's lots of things we would do differently if we started another project from scratch again how we go about engaging people's imaginations from the start and how to make the project more diverse and how to make it more dialogic and and so on but it would engage a slightly different audience of drafters and legislators and people wanting to be in the civil service and government and so on that would be thinking again about these issues in ways that affect everybody's life, but not through the courts, through through government, through parliaments. So that would be really interesting to do.
I'd like to ask you all, if someone were to only take one thing away from this whole project and this podcast, what would you like that one thing to be? So I guess for me, what I would hope people take away from it is to just question the assumptions that law likes to present about itself. And you might question them and you might decide that actually there's some merit in the claims that are being made, but to encourage that questioning and rather than just kind of taking, because there is a tendency in judicial writing to just present things as it is the experience of the court. It is well known that, well, is it? Who's it well known to? On what basis? What's, where's your experience from, of this court come from? And what impact has that had? That's what I would like people to take away from it in different ways. Yeah, I, I, I can see you nodding as well, Chloe. You go first. I mean, Vanessa stole with my thunder. I think I was going to say question everything. But I, I would say the thing I'd want people to take away is that experience and difference matters. I think now we're in a time where people feel quite strongly that, you know, universalism is important. Finding ways of connecting across diverse groups is important. But I don't think that has to come at the expense of recognising that actually lived experience matters and not everybody is actually starting from the same position and I think this project shows that. I, I, look I echo completely what Vanessa and Chloe have said and I especially with students I remember doing this myself that like you read the head note of a case or the facts of a case and you think well those are the facts because that's what the judge has said the facts are and then when you do a bit of digging around maybe you read the first instance case or maybe you read a media story a story in the newspaper or some some other way of finding information about the case itself and you realize this is one presentation of some of the facts that leads to a particular kind of narrative and that reliance on the idea that that is the narrative is is quite a, a dangerous one and i think what these kinds of projects and other critical projects do is say look yes we must come to a conclusion in a legal case a judge has to decide one way or the other but let's make sure that people are aware of the narratives that are out there that's not just one narrative and and you don't get that from reading just the black and white text from a legal reported case you have to look a bit beyond that to understand those issues those deep issues of equality and, and justice It would be easy to look at these individual cases that have been carefully broken down and reconstructed by experts and think that these are just one-offs, independent cases where things did not go the way they should have. But it is important to remember that these cases are often just one instance of wider patterns within our legal system. Patterns that reinforce existing inequalities if listeners only take one thing from this podcast, I think the one thing I would want them to take away is the reason that pushed me to want to do this in the first place. I would want people to take the feminist perspective presented here and broaden it out, expand it. The feminist judgments we have discussed demonstrate how systemic injustices impact directly on women's lives and the legal setting gives these arguments legitimacy and power. But to me, 
the fact that this project is about the law is almost incidental. I would like people to see this as something along the lines of feminism does the legal system and then extrapolate from there how we could have feminism does policy, feminism does medicine, feminism does transport, or even feminism does everyday life. The feminist arguments in these judgments exemplify how women's lives are shaped and constrained by society and shine a light on everyday injustices. They give us tools to notice, name, and rectify these injustices as and when they occur. This episode was co-written by Gabrielle Blackburn and Amrita Alwalia-McMides, who also feature in the first half of this episode. The views expressed during their conversation are their own and do not reflect the views of the project as a whole. Interviews, narration and production by Gabrielle Blackburn. The feminist rewritings discussed in this episode are Claire McDermott's rewriting of Drury vs. Her Majesty's Advocate, Vanessa Monroe and Sharon Cowan's rewriting of Ruxton vs. Lang, and Jane Mayer's rewriting of Coyle vs. Coyle. The music in this episode is Absentia, written and produced by Alison Burns for this project. We would like to thank Chloe Kennedy, Sharon Cowan and Vanessa Monroe for participating in these interviews. We would also like to thank all feminist judges, commentators, artists and activists that participated in creating the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find out more about their work and the rest of the project by purchasing the book or by visiting the project's website at sfjp.law.ed.ac.uk.